time. At this time, I want to, I'm so excited about Jeffrey and Kimberly and Elon Goodman being here in Winsboro, Louisiana. Daddy said it earlier, he's back home today, but pastoring a great work. He and Kimberly working and doing an incredible work for the last four years, uh, four years plus now uh, in uh, Loudoun County, uh, Virginia, uh, the greater D.C. area there, and so very thankful I, uh, for the relationship that we have with these amazing people. And uh, time and time and time again, I'm never around the Goodmans, that whether it's sitting around a dinner table together or whether it's him standing in the pulpit and declaring God's word, I never leave their presence without being enriched, without receiving some revelation from the Lord. And I'm just so very thankful for their hearts, their servant hearts that they have to serve the kingdom of God. So thankful that they find their way to Winsboro, aren't you, Sonia? Very thankful that every now and then they make their way to Winsboro. Mom's here today. And uh, I want you to give a warm Life Church welcome to Jeffrey and Kimberly and Elon Goodman this morning. God bless you. Amen. Well, great to be home, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. Thank you so much, Pastor Kevin, for... Um, those words that were extremely kind, way too kind, actually. Um, but it is an honor for my wife and daughter to be here with the great church that is Life Church in Franklin Parish. It's always good to come back home. I've uh, been here for Christmas. Haven't got hungry all week. Um, just been eating. I've got to gotta find me some new clothes when I go home. I can't fit in hardly anything. Um, but um, it's been fun being here for Christmas and being with family. My, my parents are here, my sister, my brothers, my, my whole family has, has joined us this morning, so it's always good to be with them and to be with you. And Pastor Kevin and Kayla and their incredible family, um, don't you just love your leadership here, your pastors, the incredible... Incredible vision and leadership that, that they have provided this local congregation, not just this congregation. Um, you meet people and um, you kind of get the sense there are some pastors that, you know, they pastor, they kind of pastor their little corner of, of, of their community and pastor, which tends to be within the four, within the four walls of their own congregation. But Pastor Kevin is one of those guys, he just pastors Franklin Parish and the Arklandness maybe, I don't know, right? But um, he, he has such a vision and a burden from God and um, loves people. And everywhere he goes just uh, makes them feel like a million bucks and, and leads them toward a greater life in Christ. So it's always good to be with them. Incredible friends of ours. And um, our, we knew each other way, way back. Um, and God just kind of miraculously crossed our paths again and refreshed that friendship about five years ago when we were getting ready to move to D.C., and plant a church, and um, I was in need of friends. I was in one of those places in my life where I needed a friend, and um, I was here one day visiting family and called uh, Pastor Kevin up, and we had lunch, and um, he became a credible friend to me in that lunch over there at Fox's Pizza Den. And uh, matter of fact, I think I told this one of the times I've been here before, but he showed up with a check. And um, anybody that's ever planted a church uh, knows how um, humbling it is when you're trying to raise resources, when you don't have a whole lot of friends kicking in, and you've got a vision from God to do something, and you need people to believe in you. And 
uh, you have to kind of feel like sometimes you go around with your hand out, and it feels a little bit degrading um, to some degree, but um, Pastor Kevin having planted a church, he didn't humiliate me that day. He showed up and didn't even make me ask for one. He just handed me a check. And you don't have too many meetings like that when you're pastoring. Um, and um, he, um, he, he, he knew what we were meeting about, I'm sure. Uh, but um, uh, he showed up and just from the very beginning bought into the vision of City Hills Church. And um, uh, I say that only to thank you because I want you to know the vision your pastor has because I know he has a vision for this local community. But it goes beyond this community. It goes around the world. And when you invest in this local church and when you give and you get behind your pastor, please know that, that what you're doing, uh, I know you see fruit here in Franklin Parish, um, but what you do when you give, when you serve, when you get behind him and his vision, it's impacting literally the world. Um, your reach goes far beyond Franklin Parish. And um, there are people whose lives have been changed um, through the ministry of City Hills in the D.C. metro area because you decided uh, to come along into this family of believers and give and serve and believe in it. So give yourselves a hand. Can you do that? I'm so thankful for you. And, um, and of course, the bishop of the house, one of my favorite people in all of the world, uh, Bishop Bates, he and Sister Shirley, I love them so much. I don't know if there's kinder people on the planet and, um, I mean, after you get around them for a couple minutes, you walk away, you feel like you got syrup just dripping off of you. And um, I, 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 I was preaching for um, a minister's event um, not long ago that, that, that they were hosting, and I told, the, I told the ministers there, I walked through the back door of the first uh, session of it, and uh, Brother George saw me. He came up. He's like, my favorite preacher in all the world. And he gave me a big hug and just loved on me for a minute, and you know, made me feel like a million bucks. My head got real big, and then I, my time the next day came to preach. I got up and told that room full of preachers. I said, this is what Brother George told me. I said, now, I know he told every one of you the very same thing, that you were his favorite preacher, but that don't matter. He told it to me, and I'm going to believe that. So uh, it's so good to be with you guys, and um, just uh, I feel like home. I feel like family, and um, it's good to be here. All right, I'm going to get into the message today. And of course, the band, wasn't the band incredible leading us in worship? Man, they were leading us such powerful anointing, and um, they were singing that Jesus paid it all. My glasses got fogged up over there, and just a powerful anointing. And, and um, Landy and Stephanie and the Mahan Fab Four are here, and uh, just doing incredible things. So good to see them and be with them. All right, I'm going to jump into the message today. Um, now, I'm going to give you a forewarning here at the very beginning. Um, I am going to take what took me two sermons at our home church to preach. I'm going to try to squeeze those into one today. Um, and it's hard enough for me to get through one sermon. But um, I'm going to try to squeeze two together. Uh, so it may feel like we're drinking a little bit out of a fire hydrant, but just kind of hang with me. We're going somewhere this morning. And I'm going to be honest with you up front. Uh, if I was to preach this in maybe a preaching class in seminary when I was back in seminary, I probably would get an F on the sermon more than likely because I'm going to be a little bit all over the map today. And I'm not going to bring any resolution to this. So if you're one of those people that likes like, you know, here's three points, one, two, three, and I've solved your problem by the time I'm done, and you walk out, and you just have massive revelation, 
this is not going to be for you today. You're going to leave frustrated, you're going to leave angry, and you're going to leave thinking the guy cannot preach. And I would agree with you, okay? So how about that for a preacher? Just, I'm just going to be honest with you, okay? Like, you may or may not like it. You're going to probably feel uh, a little bit frustrated, but I'm okay with that, okay? you got to know I'm okay with that. As a matter of fact, and now I certainly wouldn't compare myself to Jesus by any stretch of the imagination, but he was a master teacher. And I find it interesting that in Scripture, Jesus very rarely, like, answered people's questions point blank. Like, he did this thing where he just frustrated people all the time. Like, they would come and, and ask him a question, and he would just look back at them and ask them another question. And I think it kind of, like, gave us an insight into to who God is because I'm not so sure that God is all that interested in just answering every question you've got. Like, we make God out to be in our minds sometimes, like this answer machine. I come to him, put my, you know, offering in the slot and pull the lever and poop, out comes my answer. And now I can keep on going for another week, right? And uh, I don't think God, I think God is less concerned with answering your questions as he is making you uncomfortable and making you wrestle and grapple and because that's where growth happens. So I'm going to try to make us uncomfortable this morning. And if you'll just give me permission to do that, I think if I would, I really don't want you leaving here with an answer. I want you leaving here over lunch saying, that guy is nuts. Why would he say some things like that? Why would he do? Because I think if we can just get to a place where we kind of rustle and grab we, maybe we can get stretched a little bit, and maybe God can speak in that, and maybe we can grow spiritually. I'm becoming more, the older I get, um, and I turned 39 a few months ago, I'm almost 40. I've already lost my hair, so I don't have to worry about that in the future anymore. That's done and over with. And, and so the more I get toward middle age, the, the, the more comfortable I become being uncomfortable and not needing to be the answer man. That's a huge weight. And some of us, we need to let go of trying to be right all the time and trying to come up with the answers and just trust God. Because God will drop a little tension in your life, not to frustrate you as much as he wants to grow you. Isn't that right, Jonah? Like, like Jonah, I, I don't have, I'm not even going to preach about Jonah, but just a little, a little illustration. Go home, it's a short little book, four, four chapters God always messed with people. He messed with Jonah big time because in Jonah, you find God not acting like God is supposed to act. Read Jonah. It, it doesn't fit in the, New, in the Old Testament because God doesn't act like we expect him to act. He saves a heathen people without doing it within the religious structure that was set up of the day in which they were supposed to be forgiven of sins. He didn't abide by his own law. And the irony is in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah runs from God calling him to go prophesy to Nineveh, not because he's scared of Nineveh, that's what we think, but if you'll read and get to the end, of, there's the irony where God just turns everything on its head. And Jonah said, the reason why I run is because I knew you would save them. I knew you were so merciful I knew that you loved people so much that when I walked into Nineveh, as evil and wicked as they were, and I preached repentance, the moment they would turn to you and repent, you would save them. And I did not. They deserved to die. That's what Jonah, how about that for a prophet? How would you like to have that as your pastor? I don't want to preach grace to them. I want them to die. 
And God saved them without having to offer one sacrifice, without having to go to Jerusalem, without having to go to the temple. All they did was turn and repent, and God said, I'll forgive you. I'm not going to play by my own rules. What happens when God decides he's going to be God and doesn't fit in the box we want to put him in? Okay, i got to get to the sermon, okay? So we're going to, we're going to, uh, I, I want to, I, I lived in, i got to start my timer here. I'm sorry, I'm at home. I w- I'm more polished when I'm not home, okay? You're going to get the rough version, all right? Um, so I lived in Orlando seven years after getting my undergrad, and um, I was a youth pastor at a church there. And, of course, if you know anything about Orlando, it is the, it, it's like the theme park capital of the world, right? It's got all kinds of stuff there. And Universal Studios is one of them that was there. And uh, back in the day, if you know anything about Universal Studios, uh, it had what they called the backlot tour. Anybody ever heard of that? Been, been on one maybe? Been on the backlot tour. And the one in Orlando, if you took the backlot tour, you got to see stuff like the house, like the house facade that was on the Golden Girls. How many of you like Golden Girls? I hope I don't have to surrender my man card. I love Golden Curls. I love finding reruns of the Golden Girls. I'll just watch them and fall asleep at night, okay? Um, but, like, they'd have the house that the Golden Girls, you know, the outside of it. And, but the, the interesting thing about the Backlot Tour is, like, if you take it, you go down the street, and there's all kind of houses. Like, here's the house that was on the Golden Girls. Here's the house that was on, um, like, Desperate Housewives. And it looks like a, a, a street of a real uh, neighborhood and community. If you look on the outside, it looks like an incredible home, beautiful home. But if you, if you were to walk through the doors of it, all you would see would be the backside of, like, plywood, and, and, and it, there's no function to it, right? It's not actually a house. It's not actually a, a, a business. Like, from the outside looking on it, it's got the facade that makes it look like it's real, but if you actually kind of dig a little bit deeper, it's not real at all. Like, there's a, there's a form to it, but there's no function to it, Right? Like, it looks nice, but if you wanted to live in it, it would not work. You couldn't live in it. It doesn't function. And I wonder how many times, maybe, uh, I've asked myself this question, actually, uh, do, d- does my faith look like that? How many times do I have a, a form of faith, like, you know, I've got, I've got the theology down, I've got my correct belief system down, I've got you know, how God works and operates and what I need to do to please him and my church attendance. And, you know, I maybe even attend a small group and I'm kind of going through the, 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 the motions and the function of what we would think is a follower of Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But if you looked a little bit deeper, how much functionality is there to that faith? Is it just like me checking boxes, like, you know, looking at the outside of a facade, like, oh, yeah, well, he attends church, and, and he believes in Jesus, and, you know, has a small group he attends, and blah, blah, blah. I check all the boxes, but does my life really back that up? Does my life, when you drill down deep inside me, and you just kind of take a walk through life with me, is my faith actually changing me, and is it impacting and affecting the world around me? Does that make sense? And I think this is one of the challenges that God has with his people all the time. It's as old as creation itself. 
If you read through Scripture and you study Scripture, you'll find that God always had this challenge with his people. That, that, that there is this gravitational pull, it's, it's call it human nature, whatever you want to call it, that we want to, we like to lean into and depend on the form and not really be functional. Like we want to, we want to have the trappings of religion without actually being Christ-like. Does that make sense? God always had this challenge with his people. I'm going to give you um, one such case here in the Old Testament. So I'm going to read to you from the book of Jeremiah, who is a prophet in the Old Testament, uh, who prophesied to God's people in a time in which there was a lot of, lot of, um, uh, of, of form, but not much function. And God was bringing judgment to his people for that very reason. And watch what God says through his prophet in, in Jeremiah, the seventh chapter. It says, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord. All you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions. And I will let you live in this place. Now watch what God goes on to say. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal, watch what God starts talking about, deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. So what's God saying to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah and all this? God is bringing judgment to his people because they have a capital city called Jerusalem, which they saw as the city of David, the city of God, where God dwelt. And in that city, Solomon, one of their kings, several generations back, had built a temple that would be a dwelling place for God. And the people of Israel had come to see the temple in Jerusalem as the very seat of the presence of God of God where he dwelt on earth, that this is where God lived on earth. He met with his people there. They had the whole sacrificial system, and inside the temple, I don't have time to go into all of it, but there was the holiest of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, and, and this was where God would come, and he would, he would meet with people there. It was the center not just of Jerusalem, the temple was, it was the center not just of Israel, to them, in their mind, it was the center of the entire world. This is where God dwelled. Now, I find it interesting that, and again, I'll give you some homework if you want to get into this, but, but, but this temple that, that Israel had come to trust in, because God says, you're trusting in these deceptive words, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What Israel had done by this time in their history is, 
they were living any old way they wanted to live, but because they were living around Jerusalem, they would come in Jerusalem, they would see the temple, and they would automatically think, the temple is here, this is where God dwells, we've got God boxed in, and they would say, the temple of the Lord, God's favor is upon us. doesn't matter what we're doing, doesn't matter how we're living, doesn't matter if we're really pursuing the heart of God, the temple of the Lord is here, so God's favor is on us. And God's saying it's extremely deceptive because you have your religion that's all nice and tidy because you've got the temple and you've got the priests and you've got the sacrifices, the outer court, the inner court, the holy of holies. And you see the form of religion and you see that it's moving and working and operating every day. And from the outside, it doesn't look like anything's wrong with it, but there's no function to it. You haven't let... What all of that is supposed to represent, get into your heart. And he says, you're oppressing the foreigner. You're doing wrong by widows. You're, 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 not doing, you're not being just in your relationships with one another. And God says, I'm going to bring judgment on that because you're trusting in the words. You're trusting in your form and not me. You're trusting, if I can put it this way, you're trusting in your religion and not me. You're trusting in the temple. And by the way, here's some homework for you. You Go read 1 Chronicles 17. I never asked for that temple. I know that when Solomon dedicated it, and and in modern money it says, uh, we uh, theologians estimate it somewhere between $7 billion to build Solomon's temple. It was extremely extravagant. And if you read the dedication of Solomon's temple, you know, I know you have that whole scene there where they brought all the sacrifices and, and, and all of a sudden the Shekinah glory came down and the Bible says that it was a visible cloud that inhabited the temple and the priest fell back. They could not even stand to minister because the power of God was there so strong. Read it, it's there in the scripture. And all of this happened at the dedication. If you look from the outside, you would think, well, man, God's all about this. And God was for it to some degree. But if you read in First Chronicles 17, you'll find that when, when, Sol- when David says, to the prophet Nathan, I'm going to build God a house. It was a very noble request. Uh, Nathan says initially, well, kind of do whatever's in your heart. He walks away. God speaks to Nathan, 1 Chronicles 17, and says, you go back to David and you ask him, when did I ever ask for a house? I never asked for it. And if you'll give me a little bit of kind of literary Liberty, I think one of the reasons why God never asked for it is because he knew the propensity of human nature that would lead them to where they are in Jeremiah. You're gonna, you, want, you want all the trappings of religion, and I know human nature. You're going to start trusting in a temple, and you're going to start trusting in a sacrificial system, and you're going to not trust in me. But I'm going to acquiesce. I'm not going to let you build it, David. I'll let Solomon, your son, build it if that's what you want. Just like he acquiesced on their request for a king a few generations earlier. If this is what you think you want, I'll give it to you. But I know it's not going to work. And so here we find ourselves in Jeremiah. It hasn't worked. They started trusting religion and not God. And God says... Your trust is misplaced, and you're trusting deceptive words. You're trusting in your form because you say the temple's there, God is here, and I've not been there in a long time because you're not living and you're not doing what I've called you to do. 
I never wanted to be boxed in and housed in a house. God's desire has always been to live among his people so that they couldn't have a corner on truth, but that they could take God's truth to the world. God says, you want to put me on lock and key, and you want to build your life around Jerusalem, and you want to build it around the tabernacle, and you want to keep it all to yourselves and just do your own thing and live your own life. And I did not go back and read the promise of Abraham. I told you I'm going to be all over the Bible. I already know this gets an F in preaching class, okay? Just follow me. But if you go back to the call of Abraham, God says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless your family, and I'm going to make you great so that you will bless the world. Abraham, I'm not making you great, and I'm not blessing you, and I'm not doing all this stuff for you so that you can just pat yourself on the back and enjoy the blessings of God and tell everybody else how blessed you are. I'm blessing you to bless the world. I'm blessing your family so that I can establish a relationship with you that can model to everybody that this is what it looks like if you'll just turn your heart toward God and receive the love that he freely gives. And I'm calling you, Abraham, which became Israel, his his descendants did. I'm calling you, Israel, not to be God's little chosen pets cornered off, walled off in a city in a tabernacle. I'm calling you to get out of the walls and go out into a world that you think you need to be separate from and take them the love of God. But you want to trust your religion. You want to trust how important you are. You want to you look at how, how, how holy and, and how, how favored you are and you have lost sight of what I've done for you. You've lost sight of what I've really called you to do. I haven't called you to be religious. I've called you to get out of Jerusalem. I've called you to get out of the tabernacle and get into a world that I love. There's a form there, but there's no function. You stopped doing what I've called you to do and why I've blessed you in the first place, Israel. And God is more than willing. Please hear me when I say this. God is more than willing to bring judgment on his own people to save them from themselves. He sends prophets like Jeremiah and says, if you don't change God, this, this, this tabernacle that you love so much, that you spent $7 billion on, this city called Jerusalem that you love and you care for and everything that you do is surrounded here and, and centered in this city. All of this stuff that means so much to you, if you don't change your heart and be who God's called you to be, God is more than willing to strip everything from you. God is more than willing to let his own house be destroyed. God is more than willing to let Jerusalem, the city that bears his own name, be flattened if you do not become who he's called you to become. Now this is where our theology starts getting a little bit shaky because surely God wouldn't, surely God wouldn't just allow his own house to be destroyed. Surely God would not bring judgment on the city that bears his own name. Surely God would not allow any of this to happen because obviously this is the temple. This is the tabernacle. This is, this is where God dwells. But God says, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not, the things that you prioritize are not the things I prioritize. The things that you think are so important that you build your life around and you structure your life around, this is not what is important to me. I don't need a tabernacle. 
in the beginning when there was nothing, when darkness was upon the face of the deep and it was all void and dark, I was our, like, I still had a dwelling. Like, I stepped into nothing and I said, let there be light and there was light. I stepped into nothing and I called the land out of the sea and there was land and there was sea. I stepped into the abyss of nothingness and I created the mountains and I created the pastures and I created the animals. I don't need your house made of wood. What I do need and what I want is a people that is more consumed and concerned with loving me and letting me transform their lives so that they can love other people than I am about you forming a religion that you feel like you gotta, you got to go through the motions with. And God is more than willing to bring judgment, and that's exactly what he did. So I've got to skip ahead a little bit because I'm running out of time. He brings judgment. He uses, because Israel did not heed that. They kept living. They kept trusting the deceptive words. Well, the temple's here. God's here. We're fine. They did not repent. They did not turn. They did not change. So God brings judgment. He uses a, a foreign nation in the world at that time called, called Babylon, whose king was very wicked. His, it was a very wicked king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. He allows Nebuchadnezzar, his mighty army from Babylon, to come, and they literally flatten Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. They destroy everything. God's people are defeated. They, God's people who once enjoyed positions of power and prestige, and the world centered around them, their city, their tabernacle, all of those things, God now brings judgment to it. It's destroyed by a wicked pagan king from another land, another country called Babylon. They destroy it, flatten it out, and if that wasn't enough, uh, Nebuchadnezzar takes the brightest and best of, of, of Israel, the, the greatest thinkers, the greatest business owners, all of those people, the greatest and best pulls them out of Jerusalem, pulls them out of Israel, and takes them to Babylon to serve a foreign, pagan, idolatrous country. This is what God does. And from the outside looking in, it looks like it's over. But actually what's happening is God is saving his people from themselves. And so here, can you imagine like what the people of God felt like? They go from being the power brokers, they own everything, they make the laws, they have their temple, they have their city, they have their country, they're used to being in power, everything goes the way they want it to go, and now their life is disrupted. Now the world is turned upside down on them. Now... They're not playing by the same rules. They don't get to make the rules. They get the rules pushed on them. And here they find themselves. It, you don't have to think very deeply to realize that it kind of feels like where we're at in our own lives, in our own world today. Anybody felt uncomfortable lately? Anybody felt like the world changed one night after, when you went to bed, you woke up and boom, it's different? Like anybody ever felt like, well, 
you know, the things that we're used to having and the voices that we're used to having and the, the places of power that we're used to having as people of God, all of a sudden, what's happened? What's going on? This is where Israel finds themselves. And it's very easy in those moments and in those times as the people of God to say, even so come Lord Jesus, get us out, help us, rescue us. And this is exactly the posture of God's people in Babylon after judgment comes. And I want you to see what God says to them again through Jeremiah, his prophet, several chapters later. And this is where I'm going to land here today. In Jeremiah, the 29th chapter. Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem. It's destroyed. He's writing a letter to people that are now in exile in a strange land under the rule of a foreign empire. And he's instructing them what to do on message from God. Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled in Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This is what Jeremiah's letter said. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. What, what, watch, what, watch what Jeremiah says here. He says, this is what God's saying to all the captives. He's, he, who is he? God. That God has exiled to Babylon. From Jerusalem. And this is what God says to you. Build homes in Babylon. And plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And watch this. Work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for, not Jerusalem, pray to the Lord for Babylon. For Babylon's welfare will determine your welfare. Now, if you're God's people, you can imagine they're, they're anxious, they're in a pagan land, they have no power, they're surrounded by strange things, strange gods, everything feels disoriented to them, nothing feels familiar, they feel extremely far from God, what's happened, we have no control, what would anybody in that position think as the people of God? Even so, come Lord Jesus, get me out of this pagan, wicked land, right? It, but if you come to this word of God expecting some sort of escapism, if you come to this word of God expecting a word from God that says, just hang on in there for a few more days and I'm gonna come rescue you, you don't get that comfort from God. As a matter of fact, what does God say to them? He says, plan to stay. Like you want a word from God in Babylon? This is what I'm. This is what I'm sending you. Um, just, just get ready. Plan on staying a little while. Settle down in Babylon. Like, get ready to stay a while. 
Now, when you're in exile, this is not what you want to hear in exile. This is not what you want to hear in Babylon as God's people. We want to hear, I'm coming. I'm going to send another Moses like I did into, into Egypt, and he's going to rescue you, and he's going to get you out of here, and he's going to take you back to the promised land. But this is not what God sends to them. He says, get ready, stay a while. Like, like build houses, plant gardens, enjoy your spouse and have some kids, and then have some grandkids, because you're going to be there a while. I grew up kind of in a, I grew up kind of in a, in a, in a religious um, uh, tradition that we were big on escapism. Like, like we were always looking for the rapture. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, God, this world's gone to hell in a handbasket. Just any moment, that eastern sky's going apart and Gabriel's got the trumpet up to his lips and he's going to blow that trumpet. And God's going to come get us out of all this debauchery. And I mean, we would sing songs like, I'll fly away. How many of you know that song? Like, and I'm not, I'm not hating, so if y'all sing it here, I'm not hating. We'd sing, I'll fly away. Some glad morning when this life is over, I'm going to get out of here. I'm get, God's going to come get me out, get me out. Like, I remember when I was in Bible college, I, they would send us out sometimes on the weekends in ministry groups. And um, like, like with musicians and singers, we go and would sing for churches. Not me. No, I shouldn't say we. They would sing, and then some of us preachers, we'd go preach. And it was cool. I remember one day, it was like my freshman year of Bible college. We were in this one uh, little church, and um, before they brought the singers that we had brought up, you know, they kind of were doing their thing, and they were singing this old, old song. And man, the church was going. Like I, I came out of, a, I come out of a Pentecostal. Some of you know what Pentecostal. Your pastor is a recovering Pentecostal. Don't act like you don't know what. So you should know what. He's not recovering from it. But I mean, we, we would, you know, we'd get, we'd get some energy every once in a while. And man, I was in one, it was one of them Pentecostal services and they were singing this song and people were feeling it. And uh, I mean, people, there were some people running. Like anybody ever seen anybody run like in church? I mean, they were happy about it. And, and, but then I started, I mean, because it was like, you know, we were boom, boom, boom. I mean, it was getting with it. And, but then I started listening to the words of the song we were singing. And it started, I was like, it's kind of the first thing I was like, well, what? what? It was that old song, like, Jesus is coming soon. Anybody ever heard that song? Jesus is coming soon. Morning or night or noon. What's that? Night? That's the next line. Many will meet their doom. Trump's going to sound. And it, I'm like, wait a minute. Why are we so happy that many's meeting their doom? Like, many will meet their doom. Trumpet will sound. I'm like, there's something wrong with this picture for you know, like, what demented person wrote this song? Like, but but this is what we were singing about. Like, like Jesus coming. Like he's coming. He's coming to. He's coming to get us out of this broken world. He's coming to get us out of this crazy world that's gone mad. And, and we would spend like, like this just any day now. Like you'd live your life in fear. You better, you, you, it's like Santa Claus. You better watch out. You better not cry. Better not pout. I'm telling you why. Jesus is coming. Like you better live. Like, like he, he's coming to get us out. And I appreciate the sentiment of that. I, I really do. I'm not, I know we're loud. I'm not poo-pooing on that today. But, but, but I, I would challenge the idea to say that 
that if I, if I read Scripture correctly, God is not near as concerned about getting us out as he is about getting in. Like, is, we just come through Christmas. The whole story and message of Christmas is there is a God that loves us so much that he's not, he's not wanting to get people that match up and measure up to whatever degree we think they should out of a broken world, that he comes into a broken world world among broken people and he heals broken people not so he can take them out of a broken world but so that he can then use them to find other broken people and say there is hope for you that God loves you and even though you're broken he's not wanting to destroy you he's wanting to love you and restore you and do something great with your life he's not trying to get us out and if God's people can stop being so concerned with getting out of a broken world that he, lo- that he loves, he loves so much that he went to a cross. Do you think he died for whole people? Do you think he died for holy people? He died for broken humanity. He died for people. Paul writes about this in the book of Romans. He wrote to he. He talks about the fact that all the creation is good and how God's not just about redeeming a soul. He is going to redeem all of creation. Read it, Romans 8. He's coming back. He's not trying to get us out so he can burn the world up in fiery judgment. He's saying, no, I'm coming in and I'm not giving up on my creation. I'm not giving up on my people. I'm not giving up on broken people. And I'm not giving up on one tree. I'm not giving up on one mountain range. I'm going to come and I'm going to make this what it always was meant to be. The message of God is one of reconciliation. He wants to restore and change. He's not interested in getting his people. And this is what God's message is to his people. He says, I'm getting in. I'm sending you to exile. Because I don't want you to be walled off in Jerusalem just going through the motions. I so desperately want for you to be who I've called you to be this whole time. And that is my people that loves the world around you. And you will find that the end of Jerusalem is not the end of my kingdom. I'm gonna send you into Babylon Because I want you to understand that I'm at work in Babylon as well. And that I love Babylon as well. Don't you realize it's from Babylon that we get some of the great biblical stories of the three Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace that was thrown in and there was a fourth man in there likened to the Son of God and what happened the king of Babylon saw it and when they came out the king of Babylon fell to his knees and said the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, he is the one true God it is from Babylon that we find the prophet Daniel who is thrown into a den of hungry angry lions and when they come back the next day God had shut the mouth of the lion, what was God showing his people He's showing them, I don't need everything to be neat, tidy, perfect in Jerusalem, fitting among your religious system, among the tabernacle. I want you in Babylon, far from me, reaching people that only I can love. I want you everywhere. Okay, I'm done. Landy, come save us, man. Come on. 
So what does it look like when God doesn't act the way we think he should act? What does it look like when God breaks his own rules? He's supposed to He's supposed to be off in the temple in Jerusalem. And God says, no, I'll, I'll make you uncomfortable. I'll destroy your religious system. Because I don't need that. I'm not going to be boxed in by that. I'm God. And so to kind of put a little bow on what I'm saying here today is I find it interesting the way what God says in this prophecy to his people in exile. Watch what, watch what God says. He says, work for the peace and prosperity of Babylon where I sent you. The devil didn't send them there. The politicians didn't send them there. Republicans isn't the reason why it's this way or the Democrats aren't the reason why it's this way God said I sent you there I sent you to Babylon and while you're there get ready to stay a while I'm not coming and getting you out because I've got you right where I want you and while you're there you work for the peace and prosperity of Babylon not Jerusalem you work for the peace and prosperity of Babylon where I sent you. Pray to the Lord for Babylon. See, in exile, human nature wants to circle the wagons and get back to the good old days. That's what human nature would like. We talk about the good old days. And we want to go back there. We want to go back to Jerusalem. We want to go back to the tabernacle. We want to go back to where everything was 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 like we liked it and where we felt comfortable, where we made the rules and, and where the temple was. And, and God says, no, no, no. Pray for Babylon, the city where I sent you. And then there's this closing statement that's it's somehow mystical to me. I, I don't, again, I don't have any answers for it. I've made a mess of this. This is the last Sunday of the year. We get to reset a new year. And Pastor Kevin's going to come and clean it all up next Sunday, okay? And he's right and I'm wrong. Like, there's this mystical line at the end of it that God says to his people, pray for Babylon that it prospers, blah, 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 blah. For, for its welfare will determine your will. Like the welfare of Babylon, not Jerusalem, will determine the welfare of God's people. God says, I'm going to get you, my people, one way or the other. And if I have to tear down everything that you hold dear in Jerusalem and have a wicked pagan king pull you out and drag you to Babylon, that's what I'll do. Because I don't just love Jerusalem. of Babylon and all of its wickedness 
in all of its craziness. And I didn't call my people to pick fights with them. And I didn't call my people to form boycotts in Babylon. I didn't call my people to get in picket lines in Babylon. I call I called my people to get in places of government in Babylon. That's where Daniel was and the three Hebrew boys was. I call my people to build houses in Babylon. I call my people to become neighbors of people that don't think like them and act like them and believe in them. I've called my people to form businesses and alliances in a city. I'm not asking you to acquiesce. I'm not telling you to forsake your God, but I'm telling you to get in there and love them and show them my love, not your hate. being so consumed with the way that you want the world to be. Don't you understand? If God had his way, sin would have never entered into the equation. If God had his way, we wouldn't be in this mess. But I'm so glad and I'm so thankful that God didn't just look at us in our mess and say, I'm going to give up on it. He said, I'm still going to love it in its brokenness and in their sin. That's why we can't be life church. We have to be the church to Winsboro. We can't be the church to life church. We got to get in the streets of Winsboro and Franklin Parish. We got, we got, we, 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 we can't just go to picket lines and look and draw lines and, and, and call out insults to people on the other side of whatever issue that we want to we wanna take up and, and talk about how they're wrong and, and, and they need to get a life. And no, 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 God says, no, 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 build houses, plan to stay, buckle down, get in there, get rooted, get planted, and find somebody. You may not agree with them, you may not look like them, they may be so far on the other end of the spectrum politically that you don't have one common thread of ground but you are still to love them and you are still to pray for their prosperity and you are still do whatever you can and I know this isn't a popular message I know because we live in a world that wants you to fight even sometimes our religion wants you to fight we want to be on the side of right but God says no 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 I want you in there. That's why I love the fact that your pastor ran for office. And I was pulling, I, I told, I was trying to get my mom to figure out a play, how, how to register to vote down here for me. Like, I don't know. Change my address to your house. But I was following it. And you're going to win. It's going to happen. Because it's not just about the four walls of this church. It's about seeking the prosperity and welfare of a city. It's about seeking the prosperity and the welfare of a community. 
It's about seeking the prosperity of your neighborhood, of your schools, of your places of employment. And don't you dare let anybody want to put you in a corner and make you take certain stances and make you draw certain lines. God hasn't called you to draw lines. He's called you to reach out and hug people and love people. Come on, you don't have to be like them to love them. You don't have to agree with them to love them. You don't have to... So I'm calling, I'm calling, I'm calling this church. I'm way over time. I'm sorry. I know lunch is happening right now. Like some of you got the crock pot firing. But what does it look like to seek the prosperity and the welfare of my neighborhood, my city, my parish, my region? Because God's saying, you better find a way to flourish. Because can I tell you, I'm just going to be honest with you. This is not some theological statement. I could be very wrong, and I'm happy being wrong. I told you at the beginning, I don't have to be right. I don't have to be the answer man anymore. I let go of that burden. But I do wonder sometimes if when we surmise the state of our world, our nation, and we think, oh, he's coming, he's coming. I wonder if God's saying, oh, no, I'm not. You're going to have to find a way to live in Babylon. Plan to stay. I believe Christ will come again. Don't freak out on me. But I'm wondering if, if he's saying, no, I, there's people. There's people. I'm not giving up on. You still got work to do. There's still people you live next to. There's still people that, that you go to jobs with. There's still people you go to school with. So learn how to flourish in Babylon because guess what? You don't have to be in Jerusalem to flourish. And somehow God has mystically tied this thing up that the prosperity and the welfare of the city is somehow connected to the welfare of his people. Could it be that God's saying when you get so consumed with seeking the welfare of the people around you that don't know me, that's when I'll come in and I'll take care of your needs. You stay centered, focused on yourself, then you'll always, you'll always be conditioned that way. But if you can get your eyes on other people and you can love other people, their welfare is connected to your welfare. Can you stand with me all over this place? So I'm done. So what are we to do, preacher man? I don't know. What I do know is, and what I hope and what I pray is, that you go home today and this week. And you talk about, hey, what is it? What would it look like, honey? What would it look like for us to to seek and live for the welfare of our neighborhood and, and our community? What would it look for me to not be so worried about getting ahead of everybody else on my job, but walk in there and love them and lift them up? How does that look? How does it, I, I don't know. I, it's going to look different for everybody, but I do know if God can find a church and a community like this church that says, it's not about this building. It's not about us. It's about God planting us in a city say I want you to work I want you to pray not for your own welfare 
but for the welfare of the people that have not come yet. And their welfare will determine your welfare. Come on, throw your hands up all over this place. In the name of Jesus Christ, God, I pray that you would give us a burden like never before to be your people in a world that, yes, is broken, but a world that you desperately love. God, help us to be the people of God to Franklin Parish. Help us to be the people of God to this city and this community. Help us, O oh Lord, not to be consumed with trying to get out, but consumed with how can we get you in to places that you so desperately want to go. I pray in the name of Jesus. I pray an anointing over this pastor and the leadership of this church as they move into a brand new year. I pray, God, that 2020 would be a year of unmatched growth. I pray that 2020 would be a year for the life church, God, where their hearts are turned toward this community in a fresh, in a new way. I pray, God, that they would turn their hearts to this parish in a way, God, that they have yet to do, Lord, and they've done so much already. But I pray that they would literally be consumed from the top of their head to the sole of their feet with their neighbors, with their co-workers, with their students, God, with every person that they come in contact with and help them, oh God, to have an unmatched and unparalleled love for the community that you have planted them in. Help them to do what you've called your people to do, plan to stay and seek the welfare of those around them. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Come on, everybody, say amen with me. Say amen. Put your hands together for Jesus Christ.